You are listening to Season 1 of Future Ecologies. Hey everyone, this is Adam. This is Mendel. And this is Future Ecologies. And we want to tell you a little story about how this podcast got started. So about a year ago, uh, the lovely summer that we were waiting for through the difficult winter and basically live for up in British Columbia was sort of called off by wildfire and wildfire-related smoke, which blotted out the sky for months. Couldn't see hardly 100 feet off into the distance down here in the city. And it was even worse, of course, in the infected communities. Um, And the blackberries didn't even ripen. They were sour. Yeah, there was lots of mummyberry. And so Mendel and I sat down and we decided to try to make a podcast that told stories about the natural world and ecology and how we could design things different. And we used fire as a jumping off point. And so we've been working on this one episode about fire for almost a year. And, you know, it it began in this unprecedented season of wildfire here on the West Coast. Last year, as many of you know, the, the wildfires were terrible and pervasive and dominated the summer. And here we are again, uh, just a couple days ago, the smoke moved in on us. And of course, for weeks now, we've been hearing about the devastating wildfires in California and now here in BC and their impacts on communities and first responders. So this is on our mind again. And we're going to finally air this story. And thankfully, we don't have to tell the whole story. A couple of our favorite podcasts, 99% Invisible and Outside In, recently published their own episodes about fire, fire ecology, and the design of fire-safe communities. Uh, And they're great. You should check them out as soon as you can. But happily, we're here as an ecology podcast to take the story in a slightly different direction. We want to tell you a little bit about the history of fire the evolution of fire, and the evolution of the plants, animals, and human technologies that go along with fire. So, without further ado, we present... On Fire. Stories this old always have multiple tellings. Regardless of which you choose, before the gift of fire, humanity was wretched, a pale, ghostly shadow of itself. When the titan Prometheus stole fire from the gods on Olympus and bestowed it upon mankind, or at least upon the Greeks, it was a pivotal moment, maybe the pivotal moment. Depending on the telling, this was either the birth or the downfall of humanity, or both. For Prometheus, the punishment was swift. Condemned to stand chained to a mountain, his liver devoured daily by a ferocious bird, only to regrow each night for the next day's torment. Fire was never ours. Not really. In nearly every story told by indigenous people around the world, fire is a gift, secured for humanity by animals or supernatural allies. And yet to be human is to use fire. It's thought we evolved to become who we are, in part, as we learned to cook food and gather around the fire at night. As our internal worlds grew in the firelight, so too our external world expanded through flames which we use to clear land and warm ourselves in colder climes. But fire would not be mastered. Have we always feared it? Or was it when we chose to gather in cities, practicing more and more intensive forms of agriculture, 
that we began to see fires in a new light. Good evening. Wildfires continue to burn across BC tonight as more In recent years, it can seem like much of the world is on fire. And in Western North America, 2018 recently surpassed 2017 as the worst year on record. In British Columbia, over 600 fires are burning, covering the Pacific Northwest in a blanket of smoke. In California, devastating wildfires, the largest in the state's history, are destroying whole communities. It's natural to fear fire. But why have things gotten so bad recently? If you've been keeping your ears open, maybe you've heard something like this. 80 years of fire suppression hasn't worked. For centuries, wildfires have been a natural part of the evolution of forest ecosystems. They're letting it burn. It's not necessarily our policy to put these things out. Putting out fires isn't necessarily our policy. Fire is good for the environment under certain circumstances. Forests have a natural cycle that requires purging burns to reinvigorate growth. Someone just said that to you, right? Even over a decade ago, on the hit show The West Wing, there was a growing sense that maybe the Smokey the Bear approach to fire safety wasn't the whole story. But if you're like most people, the idea that we should be allowing or even promoting wildfire might sound like fringe environmental policies. How can wildfires be good? Letting this fire burn is good for the environment. You know how I know? Huh? Because smart people told me. So in this episode of Future Ecologies, we'll be talking about how our ecosystems became adapted to fire, how people have used fire as a technology for food production and land management, and the effects of our current climate of fire suppression. Hopefully by the end of this two-parter, we'll have answered all of your burning questions. Broadcasting from Vancouver, British Columbia, on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, this is Future Ecologies. Where your hosts, Adam Huggins and Mendel Skolsky, explore the future of human habitation on planet Earth through ecology, design, and sound. Chapter 1, Origins of Fire. So, Mendel. Yes, Adam. I'm about to blow your mind. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Great. So, question. What do you need in order to produce fire? Well, you'd need something to burn. So, a fuel. Plus, you need oxygen and an ignition source. Right. So... When was the first fire on Earth? Uh, sorry? When did these elements come together for the first time? Well, there have always been ignition sources. Lightning, lava flows, friction. Right. But there hasn't always been oxygen. For most of the 4.5 billion year history of the planet, there was no atmospheric oxygen. So there was no fire. Wait, you're telling me fire just didn't exist before... Wait, what? It wasn't until two billion years ago that our favorite photosynthetic waste product, oxygen, accumulated in the atmosphere in what scientists call the Great Oxygenation Event. But even then, oxygen levels were a fraction of what they are today. Which is about 20%, right? Right. It wasn't until the Cambrian explosion, about 540 million years ago, when most modern animal lineages started to appear in the oceans, 
that oxygen levels in the atmosphere became high enough to support fire. So that just leaves fuel, which means plants. Land plants. Yeah, the first vascular land plants show up in the Silurian period, a little over 400 million years ago. And with them, the first charcoal fossils. Fire and plants have been together since the beginning. So the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire, should be, where there's plants, there's fire. How much fire? Well, that depends on how much oxygen is in the atmosphere, which has fluctuated over time. And we can see the evidence of plants adapting to being eminently combustible everywhere. Uh, are we really going to get into this right now? Um, well, I was, yeah, I mean, plant evolution and adaptation. Uh, let's save it for the next episode. Oh, uh, oh. Sorry, dude, we don't have that much time. <laughs> okay. Let's skip a few hundred million years and talk about people. Okay. It's always about the people. I know. Why can't sorry. it be about the plants? <laughs> it's just how I am. Let's cut to Marlo. Sure. Uh, my name is Marlo Palat. I am an ecosystem scientist with Parks Canada. I have a PhD in, in ecology, more specifically uh, paleoecology. We're going to follow Marlo back in time. How far back are we going to go? Yeah, so basically you can picture going back uh, 12,000 years ago or so, uh, most of this landscape covered with ice. That's ice anywhere from one to four kilometers thick. So heavy that, as this ice sheet retreated at the end of the Pleistocene, the land under it was depressed below sea level, and it took many years to isostatically rebound, come to the surface. Anyways, we've been having these recurrent ice ages for a while because of something called Milankovitch cycles. Milankovitch orbital cycles is the position in the angle of the Earth and where it sits, so it drives these glacial cycles. And as, as we pull out of these glacial cycles, we entered into a, a warmer, drier period. That's when humans start to show up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, indigenous people have been here at least that long, if not longer. Although, that's another story for another time. But they weren't alone. Oh, I know where this is going. Pleistocene megafauna. Can you name them? All right, there were giant sloths, mammoths, mastodons, giant beavers, big armadillos, camels, tapirs, dire wolves, lions, saber-toothed cats, and enormous, terrifying short-faced bears. But wait, what does this have to do with fire? Post-glacial landscapes were wet and dominated in some places by evergreen spruce forests and in others by grass and sedge-dominated mammoth prairies. There's very little fire. Why? Well, it's still kind of cold and wet, but also there are all these giant mammoths and ground sloths eating all the vegetation before it has time to burn, creating these open landscapes. That is, until... Oh, I know what happens next. Go for it. Most of the megafauna went extinct, pretty much all at once. Yeah, so what happened? Uh, what, what did happen? Oh, I thought, I thought you were going to research this one. Oh, is this on me? Oh, damn. <laughs> Okay, hold on. <laughs> All right, Mandel, you ready? Yep, did my research. All right. And now it's time for a segment that we call... Mendel Explains a Thing. Modern paleontology attempts to peer back through the ages and tease out history from tiny clues. As grains of dust fall to become mud on the bottom of a lake, they trap stories from their era in layers of sediment. So how do we read these stories in the mud? 
while scientists extract these long, narrow cylinders called cores from lake beds. The top layer is the present day, and deeper layers are older and older. We do sediment cores, so we find a lake or a bog or something, and we take a sediment core. And why we do that is because we have a layer of mud where we can date with uh, radioactive isotopes such as carbon-14 or lead-210 and get an idea of, of how much time has passed. Each centimeter of a lake core can describe a year or more by way of the various particles contained within it, and thousands of years can be told over mere meters. So what are paleontologists like Marlowe looking for in these layers of sediment? Well, basically, they're just sorting and counting particles. Like, by hand? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what else are grad students for? <laughs> What are what are what are they what particles are they looking for? They're counting pollen, charcoal, and fungal spores. So each of these must be special, right? Exactly. Different plants make different shapes of pollen. So the relative proportion of different types of pollen demonstrates the relative proportion of the various plants and trees. For example, spruces, pines, alders, cedars, dug firs, and oaks. All these trees around here, and it's nice in the northern hemisphere because most of these trees are wind pollinators. So they dump billions of pollen grains into the air. They float around, they land on here, and they're deposited. So we can reconstruct fairly well what the what the plants were like at that time. So by looking at the pollen, we can see what the forests were made of. I got it. But what about the charcoal? So paleoecologists actually have to distinguish between different types of charcoal by size. So there's two types of charcoal we look at. Bigger pieces of charcoal, which is still pretty small, but uh, you know, say, say, you know, above 150 microns in size, which tend to be a little heavier and, and come from within the watershed. And then there's smaller charcoals, which are just, it's like the plankton of the air. They're there all the time. You could, you know, when we're getting these particulate warnings in the, uh, for the fires this summer, that's that particulate matter that's settling all the time. So there's this background layer of charcoal that's just coming from giant regional fires. We're not as interested in that. It's those large grains of charcoal that are interpreted as a sign of local fire, distinguished from the smaller background charcoal that floats in the atmosphere. Put simply, the, the larger, heavier grains tend not to travel as far or stay in the air as long. So if, if we ignore the tiny charcoal grains, the bigger pieces tell us how often there were fires nearby. But what's the deal with the spores? Animal fossils are actually pretty rare. Using them to directly measure population over time would leave some serious gaps. In order to determine the population density of those big plant-eating animals, scientists have to use an indirect measurement, counting the spores of a fungus called sporomyella. Oh, you beautiful mushroom nerd. Tell me more. <laughs> Gladly. Uh, spores function in a similar way for fungi as pollen does for plants. And we can infer that spore density in a sediment core tracks with fungal populations. Sporomyella is especially useful because it is a coprophilus fungus. What is a coprophilus fungus? <laughs> coprophilus means dung-loving. In order to complete its life cycle, sporomyella has to pass through the gut of a grazing animal, and then it forms a mushroom on the animal's stool. All that's to say, more spores signals more mushrooms, signals more poop, signals more large grazing animals. Pretty cool life history strategy. I like it. Okay, so what now? You've, you've got a record of all of the pollen and charcoal and fungal spores. 
year by year in layers of sediment for a given region. What then? So next, we can start to construct a timeline to see how the life and fire in a region changed over the millennia. This timeline doesn't explain precisely why any particular species rose or fell in numbers, but the order of events can hint at causal links. Like some sort of Pleistocene whodunit. So what did we learn from the lake cores? Suddenly, around 11,000 years ago, the sporomyella spores disappear from the record. So the megafauna just vanish. Yeah, and shortly thereafter, we see a major shift in pollen types and a huge increase in charcoal. What is going on? After the extensive trampling and grazing of the megafauna disappeared, forests changed dramatically. New types of trees and shrubs could grow to maturity, and fuels for forest fires became abundant. So fire replaced the megafauna. But why did they disappear in the first place? Well, if it wasn't environmental change, then it was probably people. All around the world, we see the same trends. Humans arrive in an area, the megafauna go extinct, and often we get enhanced fire regimes. Fire essentially fills the role of mega herbivore, consuming all the excess vegetation. And all around the world, from Australia to the Americas, people start to set fires of their own. Why? We'll get to that after the break. Chapter two, Camas Meadows. So, where there's plants, there's fire. And where there's fire, there's fire-adapted species and ecosystems. And when there aren't any mega herbivores, fire rides shotgun. Now we're going to talk about why, in this context, you as a human might want to proactively light fires. To do that, we're going to zoom in on the south coast of British Columbia, which is on the west coast of Canada. This happens to be where we're broadcasting from, but it also provides an excellent example of human fire ecology. The indigenous people here are collectively known as the Coast Salish, and we live on their territory. To learn more about how and why the Coast Salish used fire, I talked to world-renowned ethnobotanist Nancy Turner. My name is Nancy Turner. I'm an ethnobotanist and ethnoecologist, a professor emeritus with the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria. And she's been awarded the Order of British Columbia and Order of Canada. No big deal. Anyhow. Well, I first started in uh, working with Indigenous knowledge holders in the late 60s, and at that time, uh, the the predominant view of fire was very bad. Only you could prevent forest fires. The first uh, teacher that I had was Christopher Paul from Sartlip, and he was one of the last people who actually was growing and cultivating camas. And he was the one who told me that they used to burn over those areas. Okay, hold up. What is camas? And why would you burn it? Right. We're so fortunate to have camas here. There are actually two species to be found in this area on Vancouver Island. Um, one is the common camas and one is the giant or Leichtlands camas. They're both in the genus Camasia. And they say that the name might come from chamas, which is a new channel word meaning sweet. Is it sweet? The closest thing I can think of is that it's like a roasted sweet chestnut. The main carbohydrate in camas bulbs is not starch, um, but a complex sugar called inulin. And inulin uh, despite the name sugar, is not very sweet tasting. It's kind of uh, mucilaginous, and it's it's not easy to digest for people. 
Long ago, whenever people started eating camas, I guess, going back thousands of years, um, people developed this amazing way of processing and cooking the bulbs um, to make them edible from a largely in inedible form with pit cooking, slow cooking in an underground pit with vegetation around, sort of a combination of baking, steaming and smoking, you could say, all together. Um, and the slow process of cooking uh, actually chemically uh, broke down the inulin into fructose, fructose and fructans. Fructose is a sweet-tasting, easily digestible sugar, and it's the main, uh, th those are the units that inulin is made up from. And so when the camas is cooked in that way, usually it takes 24 hours to properly process it, maybe longer. Um, the, the bulbs turn dark, sort of caramelized, you could say, and they become sweet-tasting. Camas bulbs next to salmon was the most frequently uh, uh, traded item in this region. So it's like a super abundant chestnut-flavored onion that takes forever to cook. Where does fire come in? So you go to a place with lots of camas. And you use a digging stick as almost like a lever. And you flip over the sod. Right below you in the pit are the big bulbs, and you select out those. And you flip the sod back. And so you've loosened the soil. You're, you're also knocking a few seeds in. And finally... Then you'd quickly do a quick burn over the whole thing. And all of the little ash and the, uh, the remains from the burning would fall down into the crevices in the ground and provide kind of an instant fertilizer. And the little bulbs are still left intact in the upper layers. And then they're going to just continue growing in this nicely loosened soil. So the actual harvesting and the way it's done, the timing of it, the selection of it, actually promotes the growth of the plants themselves. And that's why if you want to see camas growing at its best, you go to places where people have been harvesting the bulbs for generations. And the fascinating thing is this process of cultivation and burning, it actually creates and maintains the camas ecosystem, which is also known as a Gary Oak Prairie. What's a Gary Oak Prairie? So going to a Gary Oak uh, Prairie in the springtime is just uh, breathtaking especially if you go in late April when the camas are blooming and the oaks are just coming out. The leaves are a light green color. There's usually a lot of wildlife around, a lot of birds, um, a lot of bees pollinating the camas and a few butterflies. There used to be way more. And it is kind of like a place in a dream. Chocolate milk. As uh, James Douglas said, a perfect Eden. Nodding onion. And that's the way I think of it. And then in the summertime, the grass is all dried and it's yellow, And but you see the, the seed capsules, they're brown and kind of straw-like. And you, when you brush them, you can hear the Harvest crackling sounds. Yeah, it's, it's hot and dry, but... Tapered uh, onion. It still has its own charm about it. And then this time of year in the fall, uh, the, the young grass is coming up. The oaks are brown, this beautiful kind of 
creamy chocolate brown color of the leaves. You often have the stellar jays coming all around the oak trees at this time of year because if it's a good acorn year, they know that. You can hear them calling and scolding each other and that's pretty special too. Oh, and then of course to follow through in the winter time, it's magical too when there's snow on the ground and snow on the trees and uh, especially in the sunset, sunrise times of the day. And even even late at night, you can often see the stars really brightly. If you go out into an oak savanna, into the meadow areas, you can look up and see these sparkling stars and it's, it's really magical. So how do we know that indigenous burning maintains these ecosystems? By following the oaks, We have to go back to just after the glaciers retreat. And the megafauna die off. When there weren't any Gary Oaks at all in British Columbia. As they move north from California, their pollen starts to show up locally around 9,000 years ago. They really do well, probably around eight to 6,000 years, where the the precipitation and the the climate is just, you know, that nice spot. So Gary Oaks are widespread. But then, about 5,000 years ago, the climate starts to cool, and there's more precipitation and the characteristic evergreen Pacific Northwest cedar and hemlock forests close in on the open territory. And yet, even as the climate changes... The oaks still persisted. So, um, you know, why were the oaks persisting? And when you look at back, you see this fire record as well. It persists locally. Not as much on a a regional scale, though. That's, That's where, you know, you can see on a broad scale, we're not getting these fires, but we're seeing indication of fire at a local, local level. Ah, so indigenous communities burning essentially prevents these open ecosystems from disappearing when the climate gets wetter. Yeah, and we can see evidence of this and cultivation even as far back as three and 4,000 years ago in places like Whidbey Island and Vancouver Island and San Juan Island. Fire was an important tool for management. And, you know, that may be um, for management of just open spaces. We like to be in open environments. Uh, obviously, camas was an important uh, food source and... and you know, you're also creating meadow habitats for things like deer or whatnot to go hunting and protection. You and the Coast Salish are only one example. Indigenous peoples around the world use fire for many of the same reasons. Clearing land, improving fertility, preventing wildfires, cultivating useful plants, promoting game species, and making it easier to hunt and defend areas. You see this with the Mayan milpa in Central America, with native Californians, with Australian aborigines, with Sweden agriculture in the Mediterranean. This is a sophisticated, effective system. When the Europeans arrived in the Salish Sea, even Captain George Vancouver himself remarked that, I could not possibly believe any uncultivated country had ever been discovered exhibiting so rich a picture. And yet, that's exactly what European colonists chose to believe. Chapter 3. Terra Nullis, a legal term for nobody's land was applied as a willful blindness to the extensive land stewardship of the first peoples of the Pacific Northwest. You know, you land in a place and uh, it becomes terra nullis and then you declare manifest destiny to your expansion of of the world and it becomes, you know, nation building and all the wonderful things we do. And the best way to feel great about the things you do is to to diminish and ignore the importance of those people that were there before you. It's this typical mindset of, of the time as we've come here and, and, and whatever people were here 
had no impact on anything. Well, most of them had uh, been decimated by disease and smallpox and population, you know, other things that reduced the population. And we just assumed that these wonderful clearings and oak systems and, and all these nice places to habitate were just naturally there. Of course, we now know that they were the product of a long history of careful management. There's a lot of people occurring in the, in the um, Georgia Depression. It's a good place to live. There's, there's lots of food. There's, um, you know, there's different resources. The climate is mild. All the reasons that we want to live here as well, right? You'd be foolish to think there wasn't a human footprint on the landscape, but we did. We, we you know, we, we come in with our blinders on and say, oh, this land is, is wilderness, and then we managed accordingly. And ultimately, we're learning we managed wrong. And we managed wrong because we just ignored something because we were just arrogant, nothing else. You know, take the races, take everything out of it. We're just a bunch of arrogant people that thought what we were doing was the best way because that's how we do things, right? The traditions and technologies of Indigenous peoples were outlawed and knowledge built over millennia was lost in a few generations. From then on, everyone I talked to, uh, especially up in the interior, but also on the coast here, um, people talked about the negative impact of, uh, of prohibited burning and how things are getting bushy and brashy and uh, and the, the bulbs and the plants aren't growing as well. The berry bushes aren't growing as well. And not only has fire suppression impacted Indigenous communities' food security, it's also put the Gary Oak ecosystems themselves at risk. Um, it's changed, as I said. There are not nearly as many songbirds as there used to be. Uh, not as many ground-nesting birds especially, like the chipping sparrows. I remember f lots of them from from when I was younger, and you don't see those very much anymore. Killdeers used to be everywhere, and you don't see them. There are even meadow larks around here, and uh, you don't see those anymore, which is really sad. And especially sad for me is butterflies. There, there used to be so many different kinds of butterflies, ones that, you know, they would just be all over. And the uh, in the spring, the meadows would be just buzzing with bumblebees and uh, different kinds of flies, surfed flies, and lots of other insects. And scientists were noticing not just that species were disappearing, but that the meadows themselves were disappearing. Instead of open meadows with a handful of mature, well-spaced oak trees, there were suddenly oaks everywhere. So the oaks were acting just like any deciduous successional trees. They started to pop up in these meadow environments. And then eventually they, you know, succession would occur and Douglas fir would go in. So we're like, oh, we're losing the species. We're losing these oak meadows. What are we doing wrong? Well, you know, it seems quite obvious, but it's, it's funny how now we're only starting to, to manage fire in these systems. So now even the oaks are getting crowded out by Douglas fir. And people are actually worried that these ecosystems, with all of their unique and endangered species, might disappear entirely into the forest.
Chapter 4, Tumbo Island. So Tumbo Island is this, this really cool little island just off of Saturna Island. You, you can probably see it if you're standing out in Tawasin or White Rock and you look over and it's just this little nondescript island right at the edge of thing. And, and settlement has been fairly limited. There was, there's some, been some history of um, a bit of mining on it. It's quite common in the Gulf Islands as somebody with, has owned these islands and, and that. So they decided to, to sell it off to Parks Canada when uh, it became a, a national park reserve. And Marlowe and his team chose this island because... So one, it has a, it has a, uh, a nice set of oaks. Not huge because it's a small island, but well-represented oak habitats on the island. Two, it doesn't have any people living on the island, and Parks Canada owns it. Good to go, right? Well, we thought, oh, it'd be fairly easy. Parks Canada has this island, and uh, then we can we can develop a, a, a fire program for this and start thinking about it. So, uh, so we did the uh, the tree rings, understand the stand age. We 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 got a good handle on it. We started monitoring for vegetation on that. And we started consulting, and that was, as a scientist, where I really learned that's where the hard work starts. Building the partnerships and, and, uh, and doing that. The science was, yeah, it's like, okay, you got all the science, now you got to go convince people. Yeah, that's always the hard part. And it took, it took a while, you know, uh, oh my goodness, it was a good eight years, you know, from beginning to end to, you know, first we would go out, uh, the ResCon manager at the time, Rob Walker, myself, we do the dog and pony show around Saturna, our salt spring, and, you know, talk about fire and talk about how safe it would be over in Tumbo because we're not going to burn down your areas, but fire is important. And, you know, basically educate them. And So they finally get everyone together. Local, provincial, and First Nations fire crews, community members, press. And then they wait for the stars to align for conditions to be just right. I honestly thought it was over. We were well into September. It's like, okay, we're going for a holiday. Things look like they're not happening. There's letters going to the prime minister. And I get a call from the park saying, we have a one day window and uh, we have to pull this all together. So it sounds like, like it was just organized chaos. I came back parts just doing these things. It was a wonderful dance where, where we were all blindfolded from what each other was going on. So they pull it off. Yeah. And then... We were so impressed. We went out, we were out there this spring doing the post-fire. And what we were really... The, the fire went quickly through the grass environment. It, it behaved exactly like we expected. It moved through the grass. The oaks, you wouldn't even know hardly that they were um, impacted. It moved around. But when it got into that forest edge, because it was dry last year, it sort of caught into the, the Douglas fir a little bit more and the Salel. And it burnt around those areas um, a little hotter than we expected and, and created this bare ground. So we were quite concerned that this might come back with invasive species. What's fascinating, and, and the jury's still out whether they survive until next year, but when we were out there doing the surveys, thousands of, of Arbutus seedlings, just little tiny, covering this bare soil. Arbutus being a beautiful native tree with peeling red bark, one of my favorites. Western scientists and public institutions are starting to catch up to what Indigenous people have known and have been saying all along. But it's painfully slow. But other than that, very little in BC. We're very conservative in Canada. 
over, over things like fire. It's been a hard push. And it's not just homeowners. There's a theory out there that pyrodiversity promotes biodiversity, that a range of different types of fire on the landscape can create more diverse habitats. But conservationists are also concerned that we might be, instead of burning for biodiversity, literally burning up biodiversity. And again, fair enough. If you're, if you're in the small, what's left of the Gary Oak ecosystems and you're concerned over a species at risk and some guy or people come out and say, oh, we think we should burn this, they look at you like, yeah, I think you should go away, like really far out of reach of the site. <laughs> and we know your name if anything bad happens here. <laughs> Chapter 5, The Penelicate. And then there's this other problem of cultural appropriation and the reality that indigenous knowledge and Western science have different goals, operate in different ways, and can produce dramatically different results. Parks had invited members of the Penelicut tribe, whose territory encompasses the southern Gulf Islands, to be present. Last year, I got a chance to sit down and talk to Penelicut elder, cultural expert, and residential school survivor, Augie Sylvester, about the burn. We were in a noisy place, so you'll have to listen really closely to hear what he said. I was there. Yeah, they, they were asking permission to burn it. And I said, well, it's got to be very controlled burn. That wasn't too controlled to me. Yeah. We gave them hell about it. Yeah, they don't listen to me. They're big boys. They listen to themselves. Parks, eh? Parks. Uh, he sounds pretty disappointed. Yeah, I asked him if he'd do another burn with Parks Canada, and he wasn't sure. He didn't feel listened to, and he felt that the fire got too hot and caused damage, which Marlo mentioned as well. Augie told me you want a fire that you can slow down by hitting it with conifer bows. Wait, a fire that's so light you can literally discourage it by hitting it with a flammable object? Yeah, and Nancy Turner backs this up. The burn was very quick, and there was one famous colonial reference to uh, what you do. You can just run through the fire if if you're caught in it. You just run through it because the flames aren't that high or or moving that fast. They're just kind of moving across the field. That's the way they described it, and that's the way I envision what it was like. Whoa. So these really were carefully controlled burns. And when we asked Marlo about what Augie had to say. That's a fair criticism. You know, we definitely have work to, um, to do to build it into a more meaningful project. That is the absolute goal. The crew works in there, and that's that's who's in there, right? You've got fires, you've got things happening, and, uh, you know, anybody who isn't part of it is on the sideline, unfortunately. And um, there's there's an element of our need to, to manage around species at risk. There's an element of our need to manage around ecological restoration. And there's more and more, which is a good thing, you know, of bringing in our First Nations partners to say, you know, what, what, do, you for, what do you see in this site? You know, what are... What are the plants? Like, we know what we know um, because you've shared knowledge and we've learned knowledge from the science. But, you know, this is really, yeah. this is yours, right? The cool thing is, 
Tumbo is only the first step. And now the next step is to select sites of more cultural significance and work with the indigenous partners to, to say, okay, we're bringing fire back in the ecosystems. We can do this in a, in a dry, shallow soil site, which probably was never an important camas harvest site, but the fire is, is important ecologically. But let's move this over now to, to sites of both ecological interests, but also cultural interests. Indigenous knowledge and Western science together at last. Yeah, I think that's the fundamental step. But it's going to take a lot of healing and a lot of relationship building. There are examples of co-management frameworks for working with fire, particularly in Northern California, but they can be fraught with power inequalities and mutual distrust. To achieve their objectives, Indigenous people have to work both inside of and around these kinds of institutional arrangements. And what about the rest of us? Well, many people are justifiably still afraid of fire. In Australia, where they've been doing prescribed burns for a lot longer than we have in North America, there is research coming out that's 50 years in the making, demonstrating that a consistent, targeted program of prescribed burning can significantly reduce the incidence of catastrophic wildfires, especially if burns are strategically placed to interrupt continuous areas with built-up fuels. But even in Australia, prescribed burning can be quite controversial, and many people think that controlled burns that escape... The not-so-controlled burns pose more of a threat than wildfires. And both proponents and opponents of prescribed burning are using science to defend their views. Wait, so one side says burning is bad for the environment because science, and the other side is saying burning is good for the environment because science? Yeah. I guess it's marginally better than discarding science entirely. But it's worth noting that while there is broad agreement that fire-adapted ecosystems require fire to be healthy and to persist, and that indigenous peoples widely employed fire to manage ecosystems, there isn't necessarily an agreement within the scientific community on how best to reintroduce fire. It's actually difficult to tell sometimes how often and how intensely fires burned in the past, and how much influence people had on fire intervals, depending on the ecosystem we're talking about. Chapter 6. Partnerships. Okay, so it's complex. But let's say that we're accepting that prescribed burns are a good idea, even if we're not exactly sure how they're going to be applied in every situation. How do we move forward? I, I'm convinced that the, the, the strongest way that we can move forward with these ideas and restore landscapes is, is through partnerships, is through mutual respect mutual recognition of the best that there is in, in different knowledge systems, and that includes all of the different indigenous knowledge systems and scientific knowledge, which has its own power and its own should never be um, ignored because there's lots that, that we can learn from measuring and all the different technologies that we have now from drones to GPS and everything. All of those are very powerful forms of knowledge as well and it would be foolish to ignore them. So what we need to do is to combine our knowledge in ways that are respectful. I love that. Let's do that. Yeah, but as Marlo said, there's a whole history of colonialism and broken trust between indigenous peoples and resource managers, scientists and farmers, urban and rural, you name it. And we can try to leverage the legal system, or science, or 
politics, or even economic arguments against those who we perceive as our opponents. But it's going to come down to long-term relationship building in communities. C-Swiss, who we spoke to in our very first episode, actually has a great perspective on knowledge sharing. I'm like, well, sometimes it starts with helping somebody wash their dishes and do their chores, because if you want them to get out, you got to help them get there. If you want them to help you get to your goals, you support them in whatever way they ask. So, you know, so then people will say, okay, but the knowledge, I'm like, and I've helped do dishes and errands and (laughs) and it still gets back to it starts there bringing it all back to the kitchen it makes sense if we lack trust we need to build trust and then expanding on that we need to support each other on multiple fronts and this all takes time i know that in the past with projects i've been involved in i've been impatient you get to thinking these are pressing environmental issues we don't have time That reminds me of something Marlo said. And we're talking with a bunch of ecologists of how we're going to have our systems adapt. And, you know, I'm meanwhile picturing Mad Max in my head. (laughs) Not so much what kind of protected area network we're having, right? (laughs) Changes of this magnitude don't happen on timescales of funding cycles or grad studies. And if we rush, it's the most vulnerable people who won't be able to be involved. And in this case, it really is indigenous knowledge that is central to these solutions. It can't be abstracted. This is what I learned from them. This is what I understand. If it's something that I've experienced myself, I can say that. But um, I, I consider it a responsibility that was put onto me when people shared their knowledge with me because they knew that, um, well, they, they wanted to make sure the knowledge wasn't lost for one thing. And uh, they knew that I had that interest and love of plants. I call it a mutual love of plants that created a bond between us. But I take that responsibility seriously to promote their knowledge, but as their knowledge. Now it's our responsibility too. So, anything else? Well, maybe. We've really zoomed in on fire here, and since we're nearing the end, let's zoom out a bit. Fire and knowledge around fire is just a piece of a much larger whole. To me, if you're going to turn things around, you have to do it cumulatively, too. You ha- and you're doing that. You're starting with one part, but you're recognizing that it's only one piece of a huge, complex puzzle. And so you're doing exactly the right thing by looking at one part, but recognizing that that's just a start, that there are many other components to this that go into education, uh, food security, and many different activities that have to be done cumulatively. And, And we're all part of a team here. We're all part of a team. And uh, so working together is the only way that we can manage all of those different cumulative activities that that we need to, to do. Augie Sylvester actually said something that really drove this home for me. Uh, no, I think all, uh, everything's important to us that you, you asked, is there something that's important? That didn't sound right to me. Uh, 
like the government always asks us, oh, which, which land is important to you? And I said, oh, you, you close your eyes and look around. Close your eyes and look around. You can't see nothing but Indian people talking. That time, that was a long time ago when the Indians, only the Indian people lived here. But if you close your eyes and say, well, that's only the Indian people that's here again. Then all the, everything here is the medicine that's been with us as we grew up and we grow up. We need to think about future ecologies. You have been listening to Future Ecologies. I'm Mendel Skolsky. And I'm Adam Huggins. And this is just part one of a two-part series on fire. In part two, we'll pivot from fire ecology and restoring fire-adapted landscapes to design solutions that we can start implementing right now. In this episode, you heard Marlo Palat, Nancy Turner, Augie Sylvester, and C. Swiss. This has been an independent production of Future Ecologies. Our first season is supported in part by the Vancouver Foundation. If you'd like to help us make the show, you can support us on Patreon. To say thanks, we're releasing exclusive mini-episodes every other week. To get in on the action, head to patreon.com futureecologies. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and iNaturalist. The handle is always Future Ecologies. Special thanks to Ilana Fenariev, Alex Dundas, David Skolsky. That's my dad. Nicole Jaris, Natalie Ban, Access to Media Education Society, the Galliano Conservancy Association, and Riley Byrne of Podigy. Music in this episode was produced by Sunfish Moonlight, Portbow, and Radioactive Bishop. You can find a full list of musical credits, show notes, and links on our website, futureecologies.net.